This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael G. Van, but you can call me Mike. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Howard Jones, author of a new book on the My Lai Massacre, perhaps one of America's most infamous war crimes. Dr. Howard Jones is University Research Professor of History, Emeritus, at the University of Alabama, author of a number of books, which include The Bay of Pigs, Death of a Generation, Dawning of the Cold War, Union in Peril, Prologue to Manifest Destiny, and Abraham Lincoln and a Birth of New Freedom. But his most famous work is Mutiny on the Amistad, which served as the basis for the Steven Spielberg film. Today we'll be talking about his 2017 Oxford University Press book, Milai, Vietnam, 1968, and the Descent into Darkness. So welcome to New Books in History, Dr. Jones. Well, thank you very much, Mike. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. So you've written on such a, a wide range of topics in American history and, you know, indeed the corpus of your work, which I, I didn't even name all of your books. Um, the corpus of your work covers two centuries. Um, please tell us how you came to write on these various subjects. Well, the um, first book I did was an outgrowth of my dissertation at Indiana University. <clears throat> and it's on the Webster-Ashburton Treaty which I will confess right now, I had no idea what it was when my professor suggested it to me. <laughs> I walked into his office after about a week after I'd passed the PhD writtens, and I said, I, I really don't know what I need to work on. Can you give me some advice? And this was Professor Robert H. Farrell. And Farrell turned around, pulled his textbook off the shelf, and said, well, let me look through my table of contents. And he started looking and he said, no, there's a book on that. No, there's a book on that. Oh, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. And I can remember his words. That would be a peach of a topic. <laughs> and he talked about there's a murder involved <laughs> in a revolt and all of that. And I'm sitting there acting like I know what he's talking about. And I had no clue. And I had taught U.S. history in high school, but somehow that name never came across my desk. I knew who Daniel Webster was, but nothing about the treaty. So I quickly looked it up in his textbook and found out it was quite an interesting thing. It's got numerous things involving a slave revolt and um, a murder and um, uh, all kinds of things that helped to resolve the Northeast boundary dispute and a few other issues. And lo and behold, uh, North Carolina was interested in it. And so it was published there. 
And um, when I was working on that, I came across, as I was talking or working on the Creole slave revolt, which was part of the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, I came across the name Amistad. And I thought, that sounds interesting. And I thought, I'll Mm -hmm. think about that. And so that turned out to be my next subject. And I couldn't believe um, the story that unraveled from that. Um, I had no idea where I was going, but it was a lot of enjoyment in working on it. It involved, of course, a hero for the for Americans, black, white, Sinke, uh, Joseph Sinke, and it involved, of course, a revolution. And it turned out to be that they were brought to the United States, and a year and a half or so later, they became the only incident in history in which they actually got to go home. And so that was a nice story to tell. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was greatly flattered that Steven Spielberg and others were interested in doing more with it. So that was my next topic. And then I I, I, would, I would imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. My <laughs> wife and I got to meet Steven yeah. Spielberg. We in, invited out to the set, watched them do the mutiny scene. And there are a lot of comical things and a lot of things I could tell you about it that we don't have time today, but it was just one of the best best experiences Marianne and I had in meeting Steven Spielberg. And she got to meet all kinds of other people who were there, Debbie Allen and her sister and all kinds of people. In fact, we met Morgan Freeman, which was an absolute delight. So, And also met the president and his wife. They were in the reception we were in the reception line, so we met them. And I just happened to have a copy of my book with him in a Walmart bag and turned around, handed it to him. And <laughs> he says, oh, look, Hillary, he gave me a copy of his book. He says, I'm going to read this. And he began looking at the pictures and all that kind of thing. But that was a very nice experience. And so I kind of bounce around from the yep. early period to the later period. The next book I worked on was uh, relating to the Greek Civil War and the Truman Doctrine. So I got into the Cold War and did that. And then um, I always was interested in the Civil War. So I wrote two or three books on that over the course of time. I just kind of like to move from one area to another. And for one thing, broaden my knowledge of the sources, which I felt would help enrich my Mm -hmm. students that I could maybe draw comparisons between something happened in the 1800s and what was happening in present day history and that kind of thing. And I thought it refreshed me as well. And so that's how I got into that. And I decided after working with Robert Farrell that I would, of course, stay in diplomatic history. That would be my major thing. And the beauty of it was that it covered the entire stage of American history. So I could teach here at the University right. of Alabama, yeah. and I'd be teaching in my subject, no matter what I taught. So I taught the surveys in American Foreign Policy 1 and 2. And then I also taught with a, with a colleague the U.S.-Vietnam War. And that got me into another broad range of subjects to work on. So mm-hmm. I worked on Kennedy and Vietnam, and then I finally gravitated to My Lai. And um, that was 10 years, nine, 10 years of work on that topic. It was one of the most exhaustive and grueling experiences I had, no question, but satisfying. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to come back uh, at the end to talk okay. about sort of your experience researching the topic because, you know, all of your books are just in, in impressive achievements in terms of research. Well, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. Really, really um, high standards. And, and you're, you're quite the gifted storyteller as well. Um, so, Published in 2017, um, uh, Milai, Vietnam, 1968, and the Descent into Darkness came out in time for the 50th anniversary of the massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, I was actually working in um, Ho Chi Minh City oh. um, on the anniversary of the massacre. And I'm, I'm doing a current project on um, depictions of mass uh, violence in Southeast uh-huh. Asian museums about the Cold War. So I was in the War Remnants Museum mm-hmm. working uh, that morning and um, spoke with actually with a couple of vet- uh, uh, vets from Veterans for Peace uh, groups. So it was, it was, it was very interesting to be there mm-hmm. on that anniversary. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it made me reflect a lot on, you know, this five decades has, has passed since this time and what have we learned? So that's the question I sort of want to put to you. So you know, aside from marking the date, why why did you feel that we needed a new book on the Milai Massacre at this point? Well, as I said, I was talking or teaching with a colleague whose specialty was Asian history and, of course, mine American. And we would take turns lecturing and teaching throughout the course. And when it came to the time that the U.S. got involved he would, you know, he'd deal with the background and talking about Asia. And then it became my turn to talk about the U.S. involvement. And then if something came up that was more inclined toward Vietnam or parts of Asia, he would talk. And it turned out that we lectured about exactly the same number of times by the course, by the time the course was over. And I became especially interested in Me Lai because obviously it's one of the <laughs> one of the nightmares of America's history. And so many people have talked about it or they have written about it, but it's always with an agenda, it seemed. I could not find a book to assign Mm -hmm. that was just really middle of the road. And of course, it's really difficult to do that with me lie. And so I thought that I can't write something in which I stand up on a soapbox afterward or during it and start saying, this is what should have been done, or these people were wrong about this, that, or this was a good thing, and so on. So I made up my mind that I was going to try my best to write what I like to call a forensic analysis of what happened, to lay out Mm -hmm. the narrative, to tell it in story description. Yeah. Yeah, to tell it in story form and lay out the facts and time and again, don't get up and start preaching. Just t- say what happened and then let the reader make up his mind. I mean, one doesn't have to elaborate on the fact of how many 504 Vietnamese men, women, and children all enshrined on that wall in My Lai. The number of rapes that occurred, the fact that there were four massacres actually comprising this one big one that became known as My Lai, and that it was during the Tet Offensive, and the fact that only Cali received any kind of punishment, which was three and a half years of house arrest, and then he's finally Mm -hmm. paroled. He's -hmm. never pardoned. So many people have this wrong that Nixon pardoned Mm -hmm. him, but Nixon was out of office by that time. And so he was paroled by the secretary of the army. We'll, 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 cir- we'll circle back around to that. Okay. We'll circle back around to that. I don't want to give away that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> sure. So, um, so the, the, 
the book is organized into three sections mm-hmm. and the, the organization of the book is just fantastic. And it's, it's a, you know, I was uh, talking about it with my wife and it's, it's such a difficult subject and such a grueling subject, but it's such a well-crafted book mm-hmm. and it was difficult to sort of like, uh, explain my, my praise for it. Like, this is a wonderful book. Well, it's a, <laughs> not a wonderful subject, but the, the, the execution in terms of the, um, the craft of history is just fantastic. So the book's divided into three sections. Uh, the first, Pinkville, narrates the events of March 16th, 1968. Mm-hmm. Aftermath and cover-up descri- describes the Army's efforts to sweep the massacre under the rug mm-hmm. and the few individuals who sought to bring the war crimes to light and the perpetrators to justice. Mm-hmm. Then the final section, Milai on Trial, details the frustrating series of courts martial and the various public reactions to the massacre, including the you know the the, the shocking uh, from today's standpoint, widespread popular support for uh, Lieutenant Kelly. Yes. So let, let's spend some time talking about each each section. Mm-hmm. So starting with Pinkville, tell us tell us about the events of the morning of March sixteenth, nineteen sixty eight, and you know what was the mission and what was the you mentioned the Tet Offensive. What's the the preceding context to this mission? Well, the mission was to destroy the really what they regarded as more or less an open door into South Vietnam, where the 48th Viet Cong Battalion and others just went freely back and forth in South Vietnam. And the mission became to destroy this area. Well, not destroy the area, but destroy the Viet Cong in this area. And the job was that um, given to a group of young people, young and inexperienced soldiers, most of them had never seen any battle time or anything. They had just come over from Hawaii from training, and they walked into the middle of the Tet Offensive. And it was something that they, of course, didn't understand. They had no idea of the scope of what was about to happen to them. And it became one of the, obviously, one of the most horrendous things that ever happened. And my feeling was in telling this, I had to start out with laying out what actually happened, that we cannot deal with Milai until we confront Milai, come to grips with the fact of what happened, how many people died. And I had many conversations with my wife, who was not an academic, but she, of course, followed me. And we spent a lot of time wrestling with sections I would write in which I would be descriptive about what happened on a given day and involving Cali or Medina or whatever. And we would actually, I'd come in, I chose the time that she was making supper and she couldn't walk away from the stove. And I'd come in with a page or two and I'd say, Marianne, I'd like to read this part to you to get your impression of it. And she'd kind of roll her eyes and say, go ahead, because she knew what was coming. And my question always was, am I being too graphic? Am I being, I I don't want to appear Mm -hmm. gratuitous. I have to tell the story. I mean, if you're going to understand it, you have to know what happened. And there were times that we both cried about what had happened when Things were mentioned about the children and the various other things, the crass attitude that was there from Callie. I I read Callie's book, and people don't generally give that much of a chance, but you really do, I think, get a peek into Mm -hmm. what's going on in his mind if you just read what he said. For example, that um, we decided that since we couldn't tell the difference between a Viet Cong and a Vietnamese because 
all Viet Cong are Vietnamese, but not all Vietnamese are Viet Cong. And so what do you do? You kill them all. Does that mean children? Yes, children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to I I don't want to face the mothers of soldiers years from now who said if you you had your chance and you didn't kill all of them. And then you had a man like Bernardo Simpson who said that we must kill them all because what are they going to do? They're going to grow up and be Viet Cong. So we'll take care of their that right at the outset. This was the philosophy. Kill them all and let God sort them out. That kind of thing. And so in describing mm-hmm. what happened, I felt I had to tell so much, but not too much. And so I used that. And then I also used as a guideline a Vietnamese student I had from Hanoi who uh, was born, obviously born in Hanoi. And she was studying at George Washington University. And a former colleague recommended, since she wanted to work on her master's, to come to Alabama because this person, Ronald Spector, had taught there and we became friends. So he sent her down to me and we started talking about me lie. And she said, I'll be happy to help you in any way I can. And she found out there wasn't anything that could be used that was open in Vietnamese or anything like that. But she emphasized somehow mm-hmm, you've mm-hmm. got to tell the Vietnamese side as well as the American side. Well, that worked out pretty well because there were a lot of Vietnamese who were interviewed by the various committees and commissions that were sent into Vietnam, and their records were kept, and they were quite revealing about what happened and why it happened and the viewpoints. These are these are American these are American interviews. Yes. These are American interviews with the Vietnamese. Yes, yes, correct. People who had just come out of My Lai, who had just come out of what had just happened. And so I tried to tell both sides. And she also put me in touch. This was one of the key things that happened. She put me in touch with Larry Colburn. Colburn was one of the three pilots who mm-hmm. blew the whistle on what happened. And Larry Colburn was right. incredibly helpful. He, his mind was so sharp. He, he passed away in 216. And that was tragic in so many ways, one of which was that we had already lined him up to come to Alabama to talk. And he loves to come in and not give a lecture, but have a conversation with the students and that kind of thing. And I've seen him on tapes giving them, and they're just superb. And he passed away, so Mm -hmm. they never got Mm -hmm. to have that. But Larry was so helpful in saying, now, now this is what happened. I can remember this so well. We landed and this happened and that happened. And no, that's not quite out of sync. Here is what actually happened, not what was said in this book or that book. And so I was trying to write a book in which, again, I would hope that the reader would, the highest praise I could get would be that he told it in a straightforward way and did not show <laughs> bias. I mean, it's difficult to show that, to keep that out mm-hmm. totally, but I tried my best to do that. And so I looked at things in that Pinkville, the first part of this, the actual coming of the so-called Battle of Milai, as Kelly mischaracterized it. He called it a battle. But the plan that was worked right. out, there were holes in that. There wasn't even a written plan. And so Colonel Frank Barker, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker, just kind of winged it as the battle went on. And then the other was that the intelligence that they had was flawed. The There were no VC in that area. 
even though one group, small group among the mass of intelligence people argued vehemently that the CIA agent in that area assured me that there are 400, 500 Viet Cong in that village. And you're going to be walking into a situation that you're going to be outnumbered, but you've got to move in there. And they went in ready to shoot on a moment's notice. Anything moved, they would shoot. And there were never, never any Viet Cong in that village. There were people who sympathized, no question. But as far as actual VC, no. Mm -hmm. They were about... Oh, two or three miles up in the mountains, they had gone through terrific battles in Tet, and they were kind of recuperating, rehabilitating, that kind of thing. But the commander of it, and I got an interview of him, Nok Tan, T-A-N, who was the lieutenant at that time, mm -hmm. said that we had no idea what the Americans were doing. They often came into villages and they would look tough and they'd march through and then leave. You know, no VC, no VC, that kind of thing. And he said that if I had known what they were going to do, there would have been no Americans left. We would have swarmed in on them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he did send some Viet Cong in in the afternoon to help clean up the bodies, help people bury their families and that kind of thing. And this was just another instance that I found absolutely absorbing. So they're dealing with young and inexperienced mm -hmm. soldiers, average age, 20, 21, a lot of 19 year olds. And they're just, just mm -hmm. reeking with vengeance because they had seen some of their own buddies killed in the course of what was happening. And they had never seen anything like this. This is in the preceding week. Yes, in the preceding week, 28 or 29 had been killed, mm -hmm. and they had been killed by snipers, by the worst thing, landmines, mm -hmm. and then booby traps. So the underlying fact was they had never seen the enemy. And you talk about frustration. And right. they had seen right. some slaughters that, that were remnants of what had happened to some of the American soldiers. And so it became... Follow the advice that you learned in camp. Kill or be killed. It's as simple as that. So, and the, the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. leaders. Go so, ahead. I'm sorry. So, yeah. No, so just, just to um, uh, just get some of the concrete uh, information on what happened that day. So you have, you have this unit of um, poorly prepared, um, uh, very nervous, very anxious, um, uh, unseasoned um, GIs. Mm -hmm. Uh, led by officers, junior officers with very faulty intel, who are told there are hundreds of, uh, of Viet Cong in this area, and you need to eradicate them. So, how how does that turn into, uh, you know, one of the most infamous massacres in, in American history? How did how does the how does how does this unit move into a village and see no signs of Viet Cong, yet start um, start murdering um, the villagers. Well, they, they had heard of what they had done before. There was one horrendous story about mutilations and that kind of thing, and that had spread all over the place. And so they went in with the idea mm -hmm. that um, shoot first and then ask questions afterward. And they were caught up in this, what I, what I would call a new kind of war, or at least a different kind of war, in that both the enemy and the innocent are Vietnamese. 
how can you tell the difference? And mm-hmm. so they, the idea was that if they made any kind of movement, if they looked morose, if they, and they did, they resented deeply what was happening. They were forced out of their huts, sometimes with a grenade, and then t- taken to the ditch where they were to be left. And then at that point, they became, in the case of Callie, let me back up just a little bit and say that when they went into this, Callie yep. headed one of the platoons, William Callie, and then there was another one, platoon led by another soldier, and then another one. And so two of them went in at the same time. Tally's, Callie's fanned off to the east and stayed in the bottom half of the village complex, and the other one went into the top half of the village complex. And their idea was that they would rendezvous on the other side at the ditch where the battle would have been over. They would have cleaned it out. And their number one objective was don't let them get behind you. If they get behind you, that's what happened to the 28 or 29. And so you have to keep them in front of you. And then once we have gotten about halfway through, the third platoon would come in and mop up. Then they'd all meet and they'd celebrate and that kind of thing. That's the way it was supposed to work. And so Kelly went in, like others, and found, lo and behold, there were many more Vietnamese than they thought there were to begin with. And they didn't know who was who. And so they began to herd them into an area, men, women, and children. And the safest place was in a ditch, or in another case, it was at a bend in a road, and they were kept under guard and Callie then contacted Medina and Medina said, where are you? You know, you're supposed to be, you're falling behind. And Medina is, is, the, is the captain. That he's- Ernest Medina. I'm sorry. Right. And, and Medina is yes. the captain that, uh, is that Callie is directly yes. under. I should yeah. have okay. identified him more thoroughly. Captain, okay. just, just, just to clarify. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Please. Continue. So Medina said, where are you? And he said, well, we've got all these villagers and we don't waste them. Waste them. Later on, that becomes a big issue in the court-martial because Medina claimed waste them was not an order. That would, did not mean kill them. And Callie argued that was the language of the times. You waste them, you kill them. And he said he got an order. Callie said he got an order. Medina said, I gave no order. And finally, the court-martial group that got together said, you know what? We can never settle that question of whether or not there was an order. But we can say that even if there wasn't an order, Callie should have had enough common sense to know that you don't go in and slaughter unarmed civilians, men, women, children, and babies. And so he was, he was, as far as they were concerned, guilty. In fact, he even confessed to shooting into the ditch. So that was one of the, the great killing areas. And what this all leads to, I think, is one of the big problems, and that was the failure in leadership, the lack of discipline over his men, Medina's staying outside the battle, he said, and not knowing what was going on inside. That's what he said at the beginning, and he lied about that. He actually was inside much sooner, within the first hour or so. He said that I never saw bodies, you know, stacks of them. He lied about that. There were people who were before him and after him filing through the village and said, I stepped over them. So did Medina. 
But then you have the problem in the trial afterward, who's going to testify? And a lot of them had already been mustered out of the army and mm-hmm. there was nothing you could do to them because of a court case. You cannot punish a soldier in uniform when he has already become a civilian. What he did does not carry over into civilian law. Yeah, I found I found that fascinating. I didn't yeah, I, I didn't know that. And I, I found that fascinating and absolutely stunning that um, once you're mustered out of the military, you can't be held yes. accountable for the uh, crimes you may have committed. While that is just amazing to me. Um, and, and that's such an incredi- incredible. Well, it was corrected in 1996. Um, that's how long it took. And so mm-hmm. you had that problem. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, 15 yeah. of them had mustered yeah. out. You couldn't touch them. The other 15, you couldldn't prove anything. And especially what was to me really got to me was the number of rapes. There were at least 19, at least 19, three officers, including Callie, involved in them, guilty of them. Another one who stood in queue along with other soldiers waiting their time to go into a hut where they had a Vietnamese woman. So this was a kind of thing that happened. One soldier who said he was going to turn them in, and he talked to them and said, you can't do this. This is absolutely wrong. And a little bit later, four or five of them came up to him, put a gun to his head and said, shut up or else they'll never find you. So he couldn't say anything more. He was done. He witnessed this, but could say mm-hmm. nothing. And so you you also had a guy like um, um, the oh, – the, um, the oh, the lawyer who uh, was with the the, um, the defense attorney for Medina, who argued over and over that you cannot prove they don't they will not come and testify because they don't actually know what happened. He took apart one person who saw it all. Was this F. F. Lee, was this That's F. Lee what Bailey? I was struggling with for some reason. I had a Would brain freeze there for a moment. F. Lee yes, Bailey. F. Lee Bailey. Right. <laughs> yeah. who, who becomes a quite well-known attorney in American yes, history. Yes, definitely. So thank me. Thank you for that. And so that was a big problem. Yeah. So leadership, there just wasn't any really. The Major General Samuel Coster was right. out for promotion. He did not want a stain like this on his record. He did not want an investigation. He said, check on what happened, ask a few questions. I don't want a formal report because there is no proof that there was actually a war crime committed. You have to prove there was one before you investigate. And the purpose of the law is to investigate whether there was a war crime. But they ease themselves out from underneath the accusation by saying this was no war crime. And, of course, what they argue is that they were not enemy. They were our allies. Yeah. So. So in, in, in the context of, um, of guerrilla warfare, where uh, one side is purposely um, obscuring its identity, is, it, is this individual a Viet Cong fighter? Is this individual uh, a non-combatant? Um, is, isn't there a possibility that such massacres are going to be more likely? Oh, yes. And is is there? I mean, clearly, this is violence enacted by the by uh, American uh, um, soldiers and and uh, the complicity of the lieutenant and the captain and and the cover up. But is is there? And this is kind of a tough question to ask. But is, is there any 
moral responsibility of the National Liberation Front to choose guerrilla warfare as strategy and the that putting the civilian population at Definitely. risk. Definitely. It puts them at risk from both sides. I mean, the, the, the U.S. coming through, looking for Viet Cong, and then there are all kinds of things that happen afterward that you don't want to talk about. Then comes through the Viet Cong and all kinds of things happen that you don't want to talk about. And so there are these civilians caught in between. It's, it's, it's the worst kind of war, I think, in a lot of ways, a war of attrition where you just simply try to wear down the other side. And you play with rules like, how do you determine how you have won a battle? Well, body counts. How do you justify right. doing what you're doing? We're under the order of search and destroy. Later on, they changed it to search and clear, but it was search and destroy. And then there was, of course, the free fire zone idea that you could fire into there because the enemies are there. Mm -hmm. And so the result, by this time, you're in the midst of Tet, and that is, as Ronald Spector said in his book, the bloodiest year of the war, and killing children, killing anyone who was in the way. So it was a different kind of war, and people were scared to say anything. And that's what I think magnifies the courage of the three pilots, which you probably want to discuss a little bit later, because that comes a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 exactly. Well, I, wanted, uh, I was going to ask you about okay. that right now, uh, about Hugh Thompson and the other pilots. And um, what role did they play? So the to, to set the stage, the massacre is going on on the ground, mm-hmm. and helicopters arrive. And they look down. They're, they, these are not uh, infantry. They're not ground troops. They're not part of that same uh, group of, of poorly trained and very anxious and vengeful soldiers mm-hmm. on the ground. So they land they from above, and then when they land, what do they see and and what do they do? Particularly, what does Hugh Thompson do? Well, the, Hugh Thompson was a 25 year old warrant officer, and he had with him 18 year old Larry Colburn, 18 years old, and then 20 year old crew chief Glenn Andriata, and they were in this little bubble helicopter jam-packed in. It would hold three, but they had grenades and they had everything else packed in. So they were literally sitting there with their feet out on the runners, like uh, Colburn was, legs out on the skids. And their their job was to, and, and this thing could practically stop on a dime. I mean, you could you could go down to 10 feet from the ground, then you take off straight, go left, right, just like a gnat going through the area. And so their job mm-hmm. was to be, as Larry Colburn told me, they were bait. They were to swoop in and be seen by the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong would fire at them, and then they would then radio where they are. People could tell on the ground where they were. And so they had come in early at 8 o'clock on that day, March 16th, when the battle, so-called battle started, and they went through the area. They came in by the road and saw that there were a lot of refugees filing away. And then they kept on going and they got in and ran out of, ran low on gas and had to go back and refuel. And they came back and these people they had seen walking down the road were now all dead on the road. And they couldn't figure out what in the world happened in these last few minutes you know, we're not that far from there, and we never heard anything like a big battle going on or anything of the sort. 
And so they began going through the area and they noticed that there were bodies at a ditch and it became evident to him that something is happening. I, I, I can't believe Thompson said that this was due to the Americans, something horrid had happened. And so he landed and he jumped out and lo and behold, the man in charge was William Calley. Now he didn't know Calley and Calley didn't know him, but Calley outranked him. And so he want, went on to say, I want to talk to the officer in charge. And Callie made it clear, I'm the boss. I'm the one you talk to. And Thompson tried to say, well, what is going on? Well, we're fighting the enemy. And he said, you know, we could do this better. We don't have to kill everyone. And he said, you know, you have no authority here. Out. So he told him to leave. And Thompson was convinced that he had made some kind of inroad on him because when he pulled up, started to ascend, the soldiers began marching away, all except one, the sergeant. And Glenn Andreata noted that, my God, he's firing into the ditch. And what was happening is Callie had ordered his sergeant to go through and find those who are alive and finish them off. So that was the one thing. Well, we're going to report this. Mm. And as they pulled out, they noticed as they were rimming the edge of the village that there was a group of, as it turned out, nine Vietnamese, five children, two adult men and two adult women. And they were running from a group, a squad of soldiers chasing them. And they were trying to get to an earthen bunker for safety. And they noticed that they're not armed. And so he decided, told the two with him, told Andreata and Coburn, I'm going to land and I'm going to try to put a stop to that. Are you with me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so he landed between the soldiers and the Vietnamese fleeing and left the propeller going for intimidation, noise, reasons, and so forth. And he did something that was just not what you're supposed to be doing, which is to land in an enemy zone like that. But you keep an eye on them and I'm going mm-hmm, to try mm-hmm. to talk them out of that bunker and we're going to get them out of here. And I'm going to tell you right now, if they fire on us, on me or on them, shoot them. This is what Coburn said. He said, shoot them. And so they were bug eyed, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so you had this tense few moments in which the squad is standing on one side and here are Coburn and Andreata with machine guns in their hands. And Coburn said, I kept the barrel of the gun pointed to the ground because any kind of nervousness, these hair triggers, you know, one shot and then we're off. And so they stared at each other and finally he gave a little sign to the soldiers on the other side that you know, he held his hand up like, you know, we don't want to be here. Please don't. And they gave a sign back and they took a little break. The the, the lieutenant in charge said, just kind of stand down. And so he brought them back to the helicopter and he noticed they can't fit into this helicopter. So he had to call a friend and a Huey pilot overhead mm-hmm. to come down and take them to safety while the other one stayed up watching for Vietnamese. So they thought that was over. And then as they ascended again, they said, why don't we make one more trip by the ditch? 
And so they did. And as they were going over it, Andreata yelled out, I saw life. I saw someone move. Set this thing down. Set this. And they did. Set it on the edge of the ditch. And Andreata got out. And Colburn went with him. And Thompson stayed at the controls. And he slid down into what he said was a the slimiest, bloodiest, slickest side of the ditch you could imagine and waded through all the muck and had them begging as he walked through to save me. And he just, I can't do it. I can't do it. He saw a child at the back of the ditch and he was making his way to that child. And he finally got to him and they didn't know it was a boy or a girl at that point. And he lifted him up because he was there hanging on to his dead mother. And he was just in total shock, just absolute shock. Three years old, five, they, they couldn't really tell. And so he picked him up and carried him back and had to go through the same thing with all those begging for help as they went through. And he lifted him up to Colburn. And Colburn said, I didn't know at the time I had my gun with no safety on it. And I had pointed it down toward Andreata, who was lifting the child. And if I'd hit the trigger, you know, fortunately he didn't. They lifted the child out and they put him across all mm-hmm. three laps and took him back to um, the orphanage, the hospital first. And then they ended up in an orphanage. And what's really interesting about this is that one of the, mm-hmm. the boy, it turned out to be a boy, survived it all. And they met Colburn and uh, Thompson. Andreata had been killed in a combat three weeks after Milai. So they met them in 2008 on the 40th anniversary, and it was that boy. And he was married with children. So they had a reunion there at Milai. So it's one of the interesting stories about this. Mm -hmm. They became the the three whistleblowers. Just incredible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, right. Um, before we get into that, um, there. So in in what uh, Medina will later on claim will be a battle, but it's really a massacre. There's only one American casualty: uh, Private First Class Herbert Carter. Correct. Yeah. Can, can you tell us about about what happened to him? Because that's sort of a revealing uh, uh, moment in this. Uh, well, in this the history. the story was that was floated first was that he had cleaning a pistol, he had accidentally shot himself in the foot. Medina concluded that he'd shot himself in the foot, period. He was guilty of malingering, that he was trying to get out of the battle. And that's that's pretty much, I think, the decision by others. That was the sole casualty, the one person. Right, get, get out of the battle or get out of, get yeah. out of the massacre. He, he, he couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So he's one of the one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that the the fact that there are there are the only American casualty is probably a self inflicted yes. wound. Um, 
And yet you have over 500 um, Vietnamese civilians yes. killed. This just underlines the fact that this was this was not an action against uh, against the Viet Cong. This is complete massacre against a civilian yeah. uh, civilian yes. center. Um, so you've 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 already started uh, talking about the uh, the cover up, and so you you have these three witnesses in the helicopter. Um, but then uh, almost immediately, there's a cover up, and the the battle is. Um, is or the the massacre is reframed as as a battle and and reported as such. Um, can you can you talk about the cover up and and who are the various players and what were their stakes well, in it? In the in the in the battle itself, so called battle, Jay Roberts, who was an investigative reporter for the Army, and Ron Haberly, who Haberly Haberly, I'm not really sure which way it is, but anyway, he was the Army photographer, and they went together. And this was really about the last time, and they were looking forward to being in the battle before they mustered out and that kind of thing. And so they would look around for what was happening, and they saw one killing after the other, groups of killings. They saw the one that I included in my book that shows about nine or ten Vietnamese women and children who are begging for mercy, standing there when the picture was taken. And the next second later, they're all dead. They were just slaughtered right there on the spot by two or three with, with rifles. And so they knew what was happening. And their job was to report on what mm-hmm. happened at My Lai. And they didn't know what to do about it. They, they said, you know, they, they've killed 100. They claimed to have killed 128 and took only three minor casualties, which was just absolutely wrong. That's all there was to it. And so they returned back and told this to Barker. And Barker said, well, don't worry about that. You can write a story without including all those facts. And it became plain that they were going to be part of a cover-up. I mean, if the one saw it and the other Mm -hmm. saw it and had pictures, color and black and whites, they were going to be involved in it. And yet, if they were to say anything, everyone would deny it, and then they would be in for it. That's all there was to it. So they, they comforted themselves by saying that after it's over, we will make the story clear. And so they wrote these wonderful stories in all the papers. It even reached the New York Times about this great battle that the American soldiers had won. And they so impressed General Westmoreland that he sent a letter of commendation to Callie's people, you know, the whole, the whole platoon, Charlie, Charlie's, and it just covered it up totally. Well, a guy named Ronald Ridenhauer, who was in the army in April of 1968, mm-hmm. he wasn't there at Milai or anything, but he had a chance. He met a friend of his a guy named Butch Groover, who was kind of a, a wacko kind of person. He even said he was, but anyway, they had a couple drinks and Groover began saying, man, did you hear what happened? We killed them all. We wiped out a whole village. And no, no, tell me about it. And he told them and he said, my God, he couldn't believe what he was being told. And he didn't know what to do with it. He, he knew that he was going to have to, he, he would have to wait until after he was out of the army before he would tell this story. And he knew he had to tell the story because if he didn't, he was part of it. And so Rittenhauer decided after 
it was over after he was out of the army. He also interviewed a couple of his friends in Charlie Company, and they confirmed all of this. And so he wrote a letter, registered letter to the president and various congressional members saying what had happened. And that caused a furor in the army. The army launched a major investigation of this, but kept it all secret, all secret. And in the meantime, they put the inspector general mm-hmm. in charge of questioning people. And he questioned Paul Medlow, who is the young guy under Cali, who did all of Cali's bidding. And he just told the whole story. Then he went, the story went from the IG to the CID, the Criminal Investigative Division. And that guy found out after questioning a number of people that Haberly had pictures, color pictures. And so he got his hands on that and that proved what had happened. And then eventually the peers inquiry set up by the army was going to investigate the whole thing. And that was a gold mine of material, something like 20,000 pages, 30 volumes. Mm-hmm. And all they interviewed over 400 people, some of them more than once. And it's all at the Library of Congress and they have put it online. So that was just an amazing collection of materials. Mm-hmm. So it really, the, go ahead. And. Yeah, and the army is trying to do this. In, in, the army is trying to do this in yes. secret, away from the uh, away from the press. Yes. Correct. They came up. So how how does this how does this oh, get into the press? How does they, this come to they, light? They um, they ended up detailing over three hundred cases of massacres, over three hundred cases, and Westmoreland looked at that and he said he couldn't believe this, and he said. But by far, the absolute worst one was My Lai, because it was the magnitude of the horror. It was mm-hmm. the face-to-face killing from three or four feet away, men, women, children, babies, the whole thing. So he called it the worst one. And you have other historians like Thomas Ricks, who said it was the worst U.S. military action in the 20th century. And then Max Hastings, the worst one of the Vietnam War. And then... Now Westmoreland is confirming that earlier when what he said. And so this all began to leak. The word came out through Fort Benning that they were holding a soldier for something in connection with something that happened at My Lai. And that raised the ears of Seymour Hirsch. Mm-hmm. He got a tip that that was going on. Right. And- and there, and just to, if I can, if I can interrupt for a second before we get into Seymour Hirsch, but and the the army is um, not going to hold a trial of everyone involved right. at once because that would look like yes, Nuremberg trials, correct? Good so they they've they've separated the, the various accused, and they're they're trying them in literally separate army bases around mm-hmm. the country. Correct? Absolutely. And what's interesting about this is a story that uh, Larry told me, Larry Colburn. He said, I don't have any proof of this, but I strongly suspect jury tampering in the course of this at Fort McPherson, I believe it was, because he was in line to be interviewed and he was standing outside the door of the court-martial people. The door was just cracked a little bit and he was standing there waiting to be interviewed and he said a two or three star general walked past him with his entourage and they opened the door and went back in the room with the jury. And 
the door was still not shut totally. And he looked around. He said, well, John, how are you doing, boy? You know, we don't want to do anything bad to Ernie, our good friend Ernie. That was Ernest McDina. And do you think we can, you know, kind of take Mm -hmm. care of Mm -hmm. him? And then they left. And if that isn't jury tampering, I I don't know what it is. But anyway, you know that they didn't find Medina guilty of anything. Right, right. And he mm-hmm. lied in court. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so Cy Hirsch, so Cy Hirsch and and other journalists start to find out what's going on. How 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 does their investigation oh, unfold? Cy Hirsch, Cy Hirsch went to Fort Benning. Only he would think of all of this and began knocking on doors, pounding on mm-hmm. doors. Mm-hmm. You Callie, you Callie, and all that. You know. Finally, after hours. Wait, waking up sleeping soldiers, right? Are you are you going to tell Kelly, right? Say that again. Yes. He woke up yes. a sleeping. He woke yes. up a sleeping soldier at one point. Is like, are you are you Kelly? He's just. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. That's really yes. investigative journalism. Yeah, I mean, this is really. <laughs> and so, what, is, what does he find? What does he? Well, he what finally he find found somebody who knew him, and he they traced him to the post office and all that kind of thing. Well, he'd been moved; he wasn't there anymore. He was already in house arrest, and so they said, "Well, you know, there's a party later tonight, and he likes to go to those." So Hirsch hung around, and lo and behold, up comes Callie. So he introduces himself. And Callie says, well, I was expecting you because my lawyer said that he got word that you were going to be looking for me. And so the result was that he said, come on up to my room. We'll have a few beers and we'll talk. Well, they had a few beers. In the meantime, he told the whole story. He just went through it all. Kind of reminds you of others Mm -hmm. that do this kind of thing. Here's what I've done. And the result of this Mm -hmm. was that Mm -hmm. he learned that um, Hirsch was or that uh, Callie was guilty of this and that. He wrote four major news articles and they weren't even accepted by the major streamline headline newspapers at first, but he wrote them and he showed what, what had happened at this place. And furthermore, that there were others involved. And then he decided Paul Medlow, I've got to find out where he is. And he contacted Rittenhauer. Hirsch did. And Rittenhauer told him he's somewhere in Indiana and Mm -hmm. down near Terre Haute, some little town there. So he goes down there, has to rent a car, do all the things to get to him. And when he got to him, he went out and it was like a chicken farm, just an old place. He was there and so was his mom and dad. And Medlow had, in the last stages, why he was out of the army, was that he had walked onto a landmine and had blown off his foot. So he was disabled and he was pitiful and so forth. And so he agreed with Hirsch, who said, you know, you need to tell this story. And can you tell it on television, do you think? And he said, yeah, he thinks he can. And so Hirsch worked it out with CBS to have him put on the Mike Wallace show. 60 Minutes was just beginning to get started on its ascension. And he appeared on 60 Minutes and told the entire story. And they got to the point about babies. How do you kill babies? He said, I don't know. It's just one of them things. And you have children? Yes, I do. And he, as I say, told the whole story. And from there, it just kind of caught on. It went. It was on 
CBS News. It was in the newspapers, Cleveland Plain Dealer. It was all over the press and on other news programs as well. And finally, the Army had to come up in November of 69 and say, yeah, we we know what's happened. And they formed the Peers Inquiry to try to find out details, interviewing 400 plus people. So it was the unraveling of a story. Mm-hmm. So who, fa- who faced- I'm sorry? Or- who faced court martial and who did who faced a court martial and who did not? Well, Medina faced a court martial, but he they couldn't prove anything. He lied his way out of it, and he admitted he admitted that he lied in his own trial and that he lied in the Cali trial. He testified at both of them, and he said, "I never saw any bodies and all this whole thing. I never saw anything, and never killed anyone." Well. In the case of when it came up to the corporal or the um, colonel who was in charge of the whole episode, a guy named Henderson, who took a lot of flack for what happened and well-deserved, according to peers. But anyway, he was accused of hiding material and all that. And at that point, Medina came forth and said, I lied. I did not furnish him the information that I told you I did. And so he came clean. But it's interesting. It was after the statute of limitations had run out so he couldn't be convicted because it wasn't for a war crime. Mm -hmm. There's no statute on Mm -hmm. that, but he, it was for a crime, a killing. And so a murder, but he couldn't be, and he was set free. And then of course, frozen in rank and, and finally gave it up. Mm -hmm. And he died not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and, and Lieutenant Kelly is, is, yes, is the one yes. case, correct? That was a result of some really superb lawyer work by a guy named Aubrey Daniel, who's only 25 or 26 years old. And I interviewed William Eckhart, who was the major who was in charge of all the Milai investigations. And he put Daniel on that case because he recognized him as a rising star. But he didn't want anything more to do with it after that was over when Daniel did it. He, I've read the transcripts and he just developed, he, he just spun an incredible story. He talked about those who admitted it. He lined them up and they testified that they, that yes, that's true. I was there. I didn't do anything, but I saw this, that, and so on. He had about a half a dozen eyewitnesses of what happened. And Callie, even as I said, confessed to killing, shooting into the, the people in the ditch from four feet away. And then he said that I was just simply following orders. And that's where you got into that, where Medina said, I gave no such order. And Kelly said, I was given orders. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've, you've mentioned this previously, but what, what, uh, punishment does Callie receive and how does that change over time? Callie is sentenced to life in prison and that is finally on appeal cut to 20 years and then it's cut to 10 years by another appeal and then finally he got to the point where he had served enough time to qualify for parole by November of 1974 so he ended up spending three and a half months in house arrest I mean, his girlfriends could come in. He had a person who helped him answer letters that came in because he was received as a hero 
And Richard Nixon said the same thing. So yeah, that becomes yeah. an ugly part of the story. I wanted to ask you about that. And uh, this this part of the story, well, actually several parts of the story, remind me so much of the massacre at Amritsar uh-huh. in colonial India. And uh, I did a podcast with uh, Kim, Kim Wagner of the University of London, Queen Mary, about uh-huh. his new book on Amritsar a few months ago. And uh, Dyer, the um, the officer who's uh, responsible for the massacre, he's put on trial and um, uh, demoted and, and mm-hmm. kicked out of the army. But he faces this popular praise and acclaim, both from the British in India and then when he goes to England. There's um, there's fun drives to um, to provide mm-hmm. for his retirement, and he's he's celebrated as mm-hmm. as a hero. And there's a similar reaction to a uh, popular reaction oh, to Lieutenant Cowley. Yes, Can you talk about that. Uh, Hugh Thompson was watching TV one time after this, and there was this big parade or something was done in honor of Cowley, and they were cheering him as a hero and all of this. And and Thompson said he just can't believe this. Look at what's happening here. Cowley was received as a hero. He he was the one who tried to win the war, and they wouldn't let him. You know, that story that always came out. And so here's one of the ironies of mm-hmm. all of this, I mm-hmm. think, is that those on the right who believed that he could have won the war if he had been given, since he was denied the right to win, we need to pull out of Vietnam. Those on the left criticized Cali for being a murderer, and that proved we can't win the war, so we need to get out of Vietnam. And so you had this strange coalition take place that then posed a big challenge to President Nixon because the last thing Nixon wanted at this point was a rapid exit from Vietnam. He wanted to work out his Vietnamization strategy and you do it slowly but surely and end it in an orderly way. Peace with dignity. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so he organized in the Thanksgiving time of this, this whole period right before Kelly eventually went free. He organized a task force on My Lai. And the purpose of it was, along with a couple of congressional committees, to undermine the claims of Hugh Thompson, that Hugh Thompson was lying, that he could he, he was the one who magnified all of this, that he was the one who was guilty. And so were the others who were with him. And so what about Kelly? Nixon said he, he got a bum rap. He was a good boy. He was the one innocent as could be, and there should be nothing that would happen to him. And that's when eventually the appeals worked out and he was paroled. And of course, Nixon had said, I will commute him. But at first, we'll launch an investigation. But I, in the end, I will commute him. Well, he wasn't around to do that, but he, in effect, got, got his wish. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, I have to ask, do you see any parallels between Nixon's interference in this uh, war crimes trial and uh, President Trump's recent uh, statements uh, and, and pressure regarding cases like the Navy SEAL Gallagher and uh, other cases? Yeah, there's no, there's no question about that. That um, What did Nixon have to do with it? I mean, he, he was sitting there making a judgment, and this was not his call, I, I don't believe. You maybe voice an opinion, but he had to weigh—he had to weigh in on everything. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So um, I'm I'm curious about um, your experiences working on this uh, this subject. Um, I, I myself have written a fair amount on the history of violence and in, in imperialism in Southeast Asia, and more recently in Cold War era violence, including the Khmer Rouge genocide and the anti-communist bloodshed in Indonesia, mm. uh, which some of my colleagues argue was a genocide itself. Um, and you know, I, I find the research and the writing. Um, to be taxing, personally taxing and depressing, and it, yes. it's 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 difficult work that takes a psychological toll. And you did such an incredible job immersing yourself in this this just dark, dark, horrific moment. Um, how how do you handle immersing yourself in the research of these these dark and and um, psychologically troubling topics? I don't know. I really don't. I just kept my head down, and I remember my editor would call me periodically. Are you doing all right? You know, a little worried about you. Are you okay? Well, I don't know what vibes I was sending to him, but I, I told him I, I'm doing okay. <laughs> and, and and I think he was quite worried because it, this was supposed to be a three-year yeah. project and it grew into a nine-year project uh-huh. because things just, it was amazing. Things just kept opening up. And that's the beauty of research. You don't know what you're going to find, but you find something and then all of a sudden eight other doors mm-hmm. are open. And it's amazing how many interviews there are of these people. They were interviewed, some of them, three and four times by peers inquiry, several congressional committees, every newsman who could get their hands on them. And, you know, it just went on and on and on. And so the story is told so many times. If you try to piece it together and look for things that tend to rhyme, you know, it doesn't repeat itself, but history rhymes, I think, then you can begin to tell the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it was, it was depressing. Yeah. In fact, I can tell you this, that yeah. my wife, Marianne, told me when the book appeared, she said, when your book appears on Me Lai, I don't want to hear the word Me Lai mentioned again in the house. And so that's what mm-hmm. she felt about mm-hmm. it. You know, we kind of laughed, but I knew she meant it. And then we were watching uh, television one night, and we were watching Kenny Burns' special on uh, the Roosevelts, and she just Mm -hmm. became enamored of TR. And she said, why don't you write your next book on TR? And I made her a promise I would do that. And she, since this book appeared, she's passed away. And so I'm I'm trying my best to finish this book now. And I see so many things that happened in his life. They're just... Un- incredibly moving and funny too. You know, there's every aspect of, mm-hmm. but I didn't find anything funny in this topic in, in me lie. There were, I no. mean, what happened to, no. to Thompson, he was practically, he was just mercilessly attacked. And when he died, he, he had suffered from several other things that Larry Colburn said, I, I, I can tell you what they are, but I'd rather you not disclose them. But there were some awful things, and he said that he he died quote morally despondent. He was just destroyed by what happened to him, and then of yeah. course yeah. he died too. So I was very fortunate to meet up with you know, so, the Vietnamese girl, and this led to so much of this. You know, the only way I can explain me so with over. Let me, let me just say this real quick. The only way yes. I can explain me lies was like the perfect storm. Everything came together that could mm-hmm. go wrong, and they did. Right. 
Right. So with, with over half a century since the massacre and the, uh, the cover up and the, the, the frustrating trials, um, what lessons do you want the reading public to take from your book? What should America in 2020 learn from Milai in 1968? That the most important aspect of any soldier or any person should be his or her moral courage. And I mean by that the intestinal fortitude that allows you to do what is right, even though everything around you is wrong. That in the midst of wrong, and wrongdoing not only by your enemies, but in the case of of what happened at Milai, what you thought were your friends, that if you have moral courage in the face of this with your friends as well as your enemies, then you've shown something special. And there was just a remarkable scarcity of this. There were people who scared to death who looked the other way, would not say anything afterward, won't speak about it afterward. Then there are those like uh, Coburn and Thompson and Andreata who saw it firsthand and were strong enough to say something, to point out what is wrong. You know, William Eckhart, who was the major I told you about, who ran the whole Milai series of trials, said that uh, the biggest thing we had to do, the biggest reform we made after this was over, was to write into the regulations of the army, you don't kill civilians. He said you would think they would know this, but we had to write it in. We had to talk about combat ethics. Don't talk about search and destroy, but search and clear. And, you know, in, in 215, the Defense Department completed this massive volume of 12, 1300 pages, which is on land war. And it dealt with all the things that are in land war and what they need to correct. And if you read in it, it's as if they picked out what happens in the case of a rape, what happens in the case of massacre, what happens in the case of and this and that and so on. They more or less lifted it from what had been said years before. And what I'm convinced is that if the regulations had been followed by leaders and others, soldiers trained better and so forth, that you wouldn't have had this kind of thing. If if a leader had the first moment something had gone haywire, you put a stop to it. You set an example right then. But if you participate in it, there's nothing left after that. And that's what they did. And it, it took, mm-hmm. you know, R- mm-hmm. Roger Spiller, one of the most knowledgeable military historians I've ever known, at Kansas, he was George Marshall, professor of military history. He talked about what Hannah Arendt and Christopher Ga- Browning and others talked about, about the banality of evil, mm-hmm. ordinary men who are caught up in something. And he said the most, I'll, I'll quote you what he said. I quoted in the book, but I'll read it. The most frightening lesson he had learned from military history is that not only psychopaths commit heinous crimes, but so do ordinary people in the right circumstances. We are all one step away from me lie. And I found myself asking over and over, what would I have done 
if I had been in the middle of this, what would I have done? I I would hope I would have done the right thing, but I, you know, you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a powerful, powerful question. Mm. So, um, Thank, thank you so much. I mean, this is oh. a fantastic uh, discussion. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but uh, before we go, I've got two uh, two questions for you. First, uh-huh. can you recommend two other books um, related to the subject that you recommend for um, for our uh, our audience? Well, I would recommend um, uh, Four Hours in Milai. Four Hours in Milai, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. by Michael Bilton, and I've got the book right here, Kevin Sim. Michael Bilton and Kevin Sim, Four Hours in Milai. I've used that in my class every time I taught Vietnam, and the kids just thought it was amazing. It, it's it's not in chronological mm-hmm. order, and it's something that is just a preference, the way he writes. I prefer to try to tell a story from beginning to end, and I think you hold the students better that way. It, they have something to hang on to something that came before and something that came after. And so I, I, this was one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I decided to write my book. And there, there's a, another book on me live by, by a guy named Allison. It's uh, just a short book, William, William Allison. And there's, of course, Ronald. Well, I would recommend to see more Hersh's works. He wrote a book called yeah. me live yeah. four. He won the Pulitzer prize for that and right. Uh, right. cover up after that. So, there are, there are good books, no question. Yeah, yeah. Well, yours is, yours is a welcome contribution to the field, and um, I, you mentioned this well, already, you. but uh, what, what's your what's your current project? What can we look forward to? Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, I'm working with him. I'm starting with it's kind of like a diplomatic biography in a sense, but I spend a lot of time, a big long introduction dealing with the factors that really molded his life. And it starts with the family, the love of family and the tragedies he went through. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but Teddy Roosevelt went through a a number. He he lost his father and that just about killed him. He was as close Mm -hmm. as anyone could possibly be to his father. And he was a freshman in college at the time. And then later on, he met the girl of his dreams And he finally, after a long, long courtship, convinced her to marry him. And he was just ecstatic, if you read in his diary and so forth. And then one night, he was still working as an assemblyman in New York. He got a telegram that his wife, who was pregnant, is about to deliver and you need to come home. And so he got ready to come home. It was about a six-hour train ride. and he got another one saying basically something's gone wrong. And so when he arrived to the home, he ran up the stairs and saw her and she was on deathbed. She had a kidney infection and she was just, she would die that, that evening. And in less than 12 hours, his mother who was living in that house downstairs died of typhoid fever. So within one day, Valentine's Day of all things, both of them died. And his life, he said, was over. The light of my life has gone out. And that's when he had a child 
had the child and had his sister take care of his child while he went out west and tried to clear his mind, tried to recuperate in some way, try to recover. And so he went through this monstrous grief that people go through. And there's just no way to explain it. I can tell you that from personal experience. And that he survived that is just amazing to me. And he came back and rebounded, got married to the a girl that he had been friends with as two and three-year-olds and had a wonderful life after that. But he survived all of this. And he developed from his father character. I think more than anything else, character. He believed that in in law, you stay within the realm of law. Now, he tiptoed close to the edge, I'll admit that, more than once, but he always managed to stay within the realm of law in what he was doing. And to me, he's just a shining example of what a politician, a statesman should be like. And I'll say statesman first should be like. So I'm having a lot of fun with him. Well, so many yeah, stories. We look forward to uh, to seeing that in print. So um, oh, thank you oh, so much for your you. time. Um, this was a great conversation on a really important book. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that very much. Appreciate having me, being with you. So thanks for speaking with us today. I'm Michael Van, and this has been a, po- a conversation with Howard Jones, author of My Lai, Vietnam, 1968, and the Descent into Darkness, out with Oxford University Press. This has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.